thank you everybody for uh, tuning in again to The Power of Knowledge. This is Juan, and I have a new co-host by the name of Paul. He's going to be joining me from here on out, and we're going to look to bring even better content than before. It won't just be one voice at you. It'll be two, and of course, Josh, he's like the... How would you describe yourself, Josh? The, the <laughs> wind beneath your wings? I don't know. Yes, yes. Is that too corny? That's all I can think of right he's now. He's the navigator of the ship, you know. He's, he's, oh, he's yeah. Captain of the ship. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, we're going to... We're going to get close to steering into some pretty rough stuff. So, yeah, I'll He's do my best. the wizard behind the curtain. Emerald City. There you go. Okay. So, uh, you're the wizard. <laughs> so, um, I'd like to let you guys know a little bit more about Paul. So, I'm going to introduce Paul right now. Paul. This is Paul here. Just to give you a little background about me, I am a clinical research scientist. I work in the supplement industry. So, some supplements that we may be talking about here in the future i might have some financial uh, interest in so i'll assume just close that um, at any time just to be as transparent and upfront with everybody as possible but i do work in clinical research so studying supplements making sure that they are safe and effective and i've worked for uh, a few different companies in both uh, general health and wellness as well as in sports nutrition and my background is in nutrition and then also in exercise performance and human optimization. Basically, what he's telling you guys is he's a badass, and I agree. <laughs> so. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> well, coming from you, that's that's high praise, Juan. So it's, I, I don't, it's, it's a lot know. more decorated than me, man. You know? Well, once 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 you uh, invite me in the ring, then I don't know. I, my badass credentials might go straight out the window. So, um, no, no worries. I'll film it. <laughs> <laughs> no, bro, we're we're a tag team now. You know, like so. <laughs> stuff gets the uh, like we're old school. They look against uh, like the Road Warriors or something like that. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> sounds good. So I'm tagging, I'm tagging you in. Awesome. Well, yeah, so part of what this discussion uh, sprang out of is that we had, a, we had a chat a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about uh, calories in versus calories out and whether that was the end-all, be-all of weight loss or whether there were other aspects. And I think that there's some confusion out there in the world in terms of how important macros are, how important you know, supplements are. And so I think we just wanted to talk about weight loss in general, how both Juan and I think about weight loss. I think that Juan will take more of the approach of uh, calories in versus calories out, whether a calorie is a calorie. And then I will maybe try to poke some holes in that idea a little bit. No problem. There's a lot of things within my approach. Obviously, to me, yes, there are things we can apply that, that deals with, like, you know, macronutrients and things of that nature. But I predominantly subscribe to, uh, to the idea of calories in, calories out. I've seen the most results out of that approach. So when I think of a diet, I'm almost thinking more like mathematics in my mind because someone says, okay, to me, hey, I'm on a, I'm on a ketogenic diet. So what you're telling me, and I know it's not this cut and dry, but I simplified in my head. So I'm like, okay, we're eliminating carbohydrates to simplify. I know it's a little bit more than that. Then someone says, hey, I'm on intermittent fasting. So, okay, then I'm saying, okay, so we're eliminating hours. They say I'm on, basically, I'm just listening to see what you're taking. I'm on a low-fat diet. Okay, we're eliminating fat. And uh, um, the caloric value of whatever we're subtracting is basically taken away from that equation. So in my head, I'm like, okay, calories in, calories out. You're just finding whatever trick that you need to convince your brain, our method, I shouldn't say trick, method that convinces your brain to consume less calories. Okay? You're taking something away, no matter what. And I, to me, the science is very simple. There's no weight reduction if we're going in the direction of weight loss without a deficit, a caloric deficit. And it's just worked for me time and time again. Yet I may have 
a particular person. Let's say I have a figure model who hits stage, and she she lives by a ketogenic kind of approach. Then I may have a guy who's getting ready for a martial arts competition, let's say a kickboxing competition. His his diet may be a little bit more balanced. He may want to time out his carbohydrates at a certain time. So you're getting like, you know, other whole foods and things of that nature. But he's still not going to see a reduction in his weight based on my experiences and my understanding of that science if he's not in a caloric deficit. It's just really that simple to me. And I want to bring up an old, old article that uh, I read a long time ago. It was on bodybuilding.com. And uh, I cannot find this article for the life of me. Time has passed. I know it's over 10 years old. It was about this, this guy who was a bodybuilder. He would go to the gym on a regular basis. He's a big, muscular guy. He's training his butt off to get ready to hit the stage and X amount of time. So let's say maybe he's two months out or three months out. I can't recall that. But he is like, guys come to me all the time and they say, hey, man, how do you get that definition come out of these quads like that? How do you get so much, you know, how you look so lean in, in, your, in your, your biceps, in your triceps and stuff like that? And he's like, these guys come to me like, I'm going to give them some secret magic pill. I'm going to give them something that only the the exclusive know. And, and if you're not a bodybuilder, you'll never know this and some trick. And he goes, until you accept this concept, you will never see results if you're looking for weight loss. To diet is to suffer from his point of view. And what he means by that is, whereas his friends or people he knows is out at the bar and they're, they're drinking and they're smoking and they're partying. He's like, I'm at home watching Netflix, eating, <laughs> eating a can of tuna. It sounds, you know, he's, he's like, I had to suffer to get this definition. I had to suffer to get these results. And of course, he's a, he's a competitive bodybuilder. He's the extreme of that, which goes into my personal philosophy or idea. And this is how I train every client. Brain leads, body follows. So until you, until you believe you can lose weight, you won't. Until you believe <laughs> you can burn fat, you won't. You have to stay on the regimen before even I prescribe anything. <laughs> I can get, I, there's people that I'm related to, family members, hey Juan, can you write me up a diet? I'm like, sure. But in my mind, I'm being realistic. I, I hate that I'm, it's kind of bleak, but I'm like, they're not going to really apply it because I don't know their mindset on it. I don't, I don't know how much they want that because, um, and I've said this before, um, and I bring this up quite often, but it's very simple to me. It's like, what do we want? And a lot of people say what they want, but do they really want it? And what I mean by that is like, that example was if someone, said, you got to travel 100 miles in the next 30 minutes to collect a million-dollar check. If you really wanted that million dollars, you're going to least attempt to get your butt over there in, in 30 minutes. You're going to run red lights. You're, gonna, you're going to, you're, you, if your mother's calling you, you're going to be like, Mom, I'm call you back. You, <laughs> you're not going to risk it. You're going to take off. Even if you don't get it, you're going to break your neck because it's something you really want. And there's nothing, nothing that is stopping you from achieving that. So until I know that that person really wants that, otherwise they're just kind of going through the motions. So I have to kind of mm -hmm. convince them and, 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 and let them know, like, it's, it's not easy. It's not sure. easy. Before I start, I just want to say that overall – Calories in, calories out is the predominant mathematical equation that is involved in weight loss. So I agree with that. I'm not, I'm not going to come in here and try to say, let's throw that out the window. Okay. That, <laughs> that does dominate the conversation. So I just want to start there. Um, however, I do believe that sometimes focusing only on that equation can lead to some misunderstandings. And 
you know, we can go back over and into that more deeply as we move on. But I just want to hit a couple of points that that you brought up in some other places. So I certainly agree that for a lot of bodybuilders, people are hoping for some sort of a secret to come out of that where they are, you know, um, you know, people want the people want the secret, the magic pill, the easy way to to get to somewhere. And they certainly are not seeing the amount of work that individuals, whether it's, you know, you know, professionals, bodybuilders, mm-hmm. uh, MMA athletes, football players, athletes of various types, you know, that's their job. They're professionals. Um, so that is that plays a huge part in just, you know, the amount of work that they've put into it, the amount of, you know, uh, yeah, the amount of suffering, right? Both on the exercise side and on the food side plays a big role. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. However, there are certain secrets that are involved in that process. So just to name one, for example, most of those or all of those bodybuilders and the and MMA athletes are going to use one secret in order to get in shape for standing on that scale for MMA athletes or that photo shoot for being a bodybuilder, and that's a water cut. So the, so the water cut, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, right? With, you know, yeah. working with MMA athletes and trying to get any any sort of weight class athlete. Um, so, um, you know, it's that is a trick that allows you to look really cut for photo shoots and, or for getting on stage for bodybuilders. And that is something that... Um, I would I would venture to say every MMA athlete does before they step on that scale because it's an easy way to lose anywhere from you know and I say easy in quotes right it's it's easy until you've done it yourself but if you have to lose one more pound or if you have to lose 12 pounds before you step on that scale so that you can make your money and step into the ring or the octagon um you're going to do a water cut so I guess I personally um because I haven't dealt with as many MMA fighters in a while, or just fighters in general. What I always am concerned with is because I try to get them to cut way earlier in the game, and I have to be realistic. Like, I want them to get a big head start. My concern is more have to do, like, the processing that it does and how hard it can be on the kidneys if done and applied incorrectly. How, Mm -hmm. uh, how, How you are dehydrated. And, and, uh, I know that certain organizations within the MMA community uh, no longer, I think it's all of them, but they don't allow, no longer allow IDs. Correct. So that the, that depletion is what I'm concerned with. Absolutely. Because let's say an amateur fighter, I know an amateur fighter, they weigh in the day of, in a lot of cases, depending on the state. Like in the state of California, I know they did that, but I believe when I had one of my younger brothers fight here in the state of Iowa, they had them weigh in the day before. So I'm just saying, how do you, how do you, how do you uh, keep the, the safety protocol up to par? I guess if that's the right question to ask, I'm, I'm more concerned about yeah. their safety. I know it's water cuts are interesting to me. I've done them, but no, it's, and it's a great question. Um, yeah, and I think that there is a very important distinction to be made between, you know, bodybuilders who are doing it to get a certain look. Um, and so they 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 can they can stop whenever they want, right? So they they're 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 not trying to hit a number. They're trying to hit a certain look, and they don't have to perform in the same way, right? Where they're getting right. on stage to, um, you know, and, and they are they're doing a performance, but it's not, you know, where, where, is when, hard. It is hard. Absolutely. That, but, Absolutely. But it's not like MMA. There's no concussions thing. involved. There's no there's right. no brain damage. And, and that's head one trauma. of the, Yeah, head trauma, exactly. That's that's one of the places where where water can really be uh, you know, can can play a role and just the speed of your performance, which then, you know, is gonna affect how many times you're gonna be getting hit and what have you. So, you know, there's a there's been a couple of different ideas that have been floated. I mean, certainly one that is true in in many weight class uh, sports such as wrestling, collegiate wrestling is, yeah, they do it hours before. So you, you have to essentially, you have to essentially be competing near your walking weight. You can't, you can't be that they, different. 
I think we did 10 to 12 pounds out max. I, I'm a wrestler. I was a state champion wrestler. And so, like, the coach would never want you to be more than 10 pounds out. And that's really kind of pushing. It was more like, well, my team was like seven to eight pounds. So that, to me, is not a hard cut. But what I'm seeing, like, like a guy like myself being an adult man, I naturally walk over 200 pounds, somewhere between 205 to 210. And then dropping down to 170 pounds for five foot nine. So my BMI would say that that's a safe area for me to be at. How, how do you see those extreme cuts of 20 pounds of water, 30 pounds of water? Or do you just go against that? I'm just, I'm curious. Yeah. So let me ask you. So when you were doing seven or eight, was, was that water or were you trying to come down in weight before you did a water cut? How much weight were you hoping to cut? five pounds or was it that seven to eight age plays a big part in it so mm -hmm. when i started wrestling i was i was just turning a teenager when i first started i could burn fat so quickly i mean i could burn water i should say i get it burn, run it off in like one practice so the cut wasn't as challenging then when i got back into mma later down the line when i got into my 20s my late 20s that cut became a little bit more challenging so what I could do in a day may may take two to four days, you know. And as you, I've noticed that athletes are getting older, our metabolism naturally want to slow down. Sure. Um, it uh, makes it it makes that water cut even more because the depletion is 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 a um, is a unique thing. First of all, let me just say this for the record: I do not agree with the. The, the the no use of the IV. I think it's a terrible idea. I, I don't I don't I I guess I see the advantage, but I would want them to want healthier fighters to the best of their ability. I mean, it's hard enough. It seems like you're you're harming the fighters while trying to get to a safer place, but it's almost a half measure that only harms the fighters. Well, you know, instead of actually um, helping them to to level the playing field, would that be yeah. accurate? It's pretty much dead on. My issue is this: like, I, I, I'm I'm a realist with a lot of this stuff, and what I mean by that is, this person, let's just say, okay, I know I have a main event fight. Let's say I'm contracted to generate roughly about a hundred grand, but when it's all said and done. Right, mm -hmm. these athletes are going to go through whatever the hell they can, sure, to get that. You know, that's why you'll run into. I mean, for the people out there that do follow MMA, UFC, Bellator, or whatever, but Dillashaw, he's you know, he supposedly got popped for EPO. He just pops for that. Tony Ferguson was in his recent fight against Gaethje. He did a cut. I think um, three weeks or four weeks before, and they weighed at 155 pounds, then did it again within another four weeks or something like that. I know Tony on a personal level, actually. The cut is hardcore, man. I've, I've literally seen someone go into a seizure from, you know, that dehydration and whatnot. It's not a pretty sight. So I'm, I'm very concerned about the well-being of these people as sure. much as I'm no, concerned about them, their, their athletics of it. So yes, I, I do agree with what you said. And I you think know, what I people, I think just something that people can maybe aren't familiar with is, is the amount of weight that we're talking about. And so with or without the IV, I mean, it isn't uncommon for people to, for fighters. I've, you know, I tried to run uh, a sort of pilot study uh, looking at um, bone mass and trying to see how that might be affected. I had this hypothesis that when you lose that much water and then regain that much water, it could have effects on the bones because you mm. are also leaching out minerals when you are sweating. Sweating is an excellent way to uh, detoxify, to get rid of heavy metals and to get rid of various toxins and air pollutants that build up in your body. But along with that, you're getting rid of 
minerals that you that you want, right? And that's a, that's essentially how your body pushes water out. Is it it uses minerals to sort of you know mm-hmm. electrochemically push the water out. So you lose sodium. You know everybody knows that, right? So oh, so yeah. you you got to replenish those uh, those electrolytes, and some of those are coming out of the bone, right? So you hold magnesium and uh, phosphorus and other electrolytes in your bones, calcium is well known. So I had this hypothesis that maybe you would be by doing these, the dehydration rehydration that you're doing that you might have some, some, some bone effects that could be maybe seen on a DEXA or on a bone scan. And so I ran this pilot study with some with some athletes, and I was shocked with the amount of just body weight that they were losing, and then that they were regaining, especially the regain. Because the loss I sort of knew, right? because if you know, if you know what somebody's walking weight is, and then you see them weigh in, well, then you know how much they lost. And so the idea that some athletes were losing 20 pounds or more for a fight wasn't that surprising to me. What was surprising is that within 24 hours of rehydration, um, and I believe that this was when IVs were legal. Mm-hmm. But I think even without IVs, uh, this is still probably happening, um, that they were regaining all that weight in 2014. Exactly. I was glad you brought that up because I was going to bring it up next. They were, all the way, they were all the way back. They were heavier, right? Because now their body's holding on to everything. The body doesn't know. <laughs> so it's holding on to extra, you know, extra water, extra however. And one difference that I could see is that with an IV – versus you know uh versus drinking ingesting is i don't know how well the your electrolytes uh get back into really target tissues they'll get in the body somewhere but you're how well is the body able to uh to absorb them through digestion as opposed to through the blood how well is uh are they able to get transported to those target tissues, whether it's muscle or back into the bone? Uh, I don't know of any data on that, but it could be very difficult. Can I, can I say this? I think how you're addressing it is awesome because you're coming from the the way the IV affects you physically. But I I know from being a person who has experienced this, that depletion, you feel like crap. Mm-hmm. And then if, if you do it incorrectly, and even if you do it, even if you do it correctly, correct, it's just, it's, it's a huge toll on the body. That feeling you get when you get that IV from my personal experience, you feel great. You feel ready. <laughs> you know? So it makes you feel good again. So that plays a part in your performance, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a mental state. So I'm glad. And the digestive load. And the digestive load, because you're expecting your gut to do a lot of work because you're putting all that water and all those nutrients through your gut. And as any endurance athlete knows, a lot of the difficulty with supplementation and keeping your blood glucose levels high and keeping your fueling high during, let's say, a marathon or some sort of long is the digestive issues where, you know, you have all sorts of endurance gels that are on the market. And really the only difference, the main difference among all of a lot of them is how does it make my stomach feel when I run a marathon? So it becomes a very individualized thing because the, 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 when, you're, when you're performing at a high level like that, the blood is being shunted to your muscles, to the exterior, away from your gut. So your gut isn't working very well. And so you, you know, the, the gut needs that blood flow when it's trying to digest. That's why we generally separate exercise time and then rest and digest time because it's for the blood shunting. So you can turn the gut on and have it be active versus turn the muscles on and have them be active. So, you know, you're putting a lot of digestive load uh, and, and expecting the, the gut to do a lot of work. But just to answer the, the question itself that you would ask, I would, I would, my preference is, as you said, to hit a water cut that is in that five to eight pound range Unfortunately, a lot of athletes get so comfortable with a water cut that they feel like 12 is nothing. And yeah. I feel like a 12 still is going to hamper performance. So I prefer to really use diet to get them 
to a spot before the water cut where they can only have to lose between five and eight pounds. And in my limited experience, athletes who do that are performing much, much better and are feeling much, much better. To the people out there listening, let me translate a little bit of what we're saying. To simplify it, you'll have an athlete, they'll do a hard cut, they'll make weight. So let's say they make 155 pounds, but Mm -hmm. they normally walk around at 185 pounds. Mm-hmm. So they're 185 pounds, 190 pounds. They do a hard water cut, and then they get down to 155 pounds, 154 pounds, hit the scale. They rehydrate. They use an IV, whatever it is. Eat, they drink, sleep, eat, drink, sleep, eat, drink, sleep for the next 24 yeah. hours. That's all they, they do. They, right, and then they show up at the fight, mm-hmm. and now they're 175 pounds, 178 pounds. That mm-hmm. is a massive advantage for that individual if the other mm-hmm. person did not apply that same method. And they may mm-hmm. not have that. They may walk around. That other person may naturally walk around at 160 pounds. And in fighting, believe it or not, size matters. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. That's movement. why we have weight class athletes, right? Right. But I'm saying, like, I think the, I think the novice, uh, the, and the average person may not understand that. Because yeah, martial art movies might make you believe certain things like this little man, because Bruce Lee was not a very large man. I think Bruce Lee was like five, six or something. And he was like 140 pounds, 145 pounds soaking wet. He's not a, he was not a big man. Mm-hmm. So, so thinking he could beat the heavyweight champion of boxing or MMA, not likely. Right. It, it, it takes it, a super it, athlete. It takes it takes a Bruce Lee or it takes and that's what put the Gracies on the map. And that's what put MMA on the map was, mm-hmm. you know, small Gracies attacking giant, super large men and being able to. So the, in those cases, their skill did overcome their the weight difference. But those are rare cases and super athletes. And there's a reason we don't do that. Anymore. Yeah. And it's, and it's very rare that that actually happens. And especially um, now that everybody knows yeah. various martial arts, that people's skills are much more matched than, you know, you know, you don't want Cormier yeah. going up against uh, Dillashaw, you know? No. If you had a guy like, because, well, the USC was started by the Gracie family to prove that they have the best martial art on the planet. Mm-hmm. Technically, they were correct at that moment and right. within that moment in time because no one really knew enough about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So that's how you they, they had the brother, their uncle, their cousin, whatever, Hoist Gracie. He was the prime age. So Hoist Gracie would come into this fight in a gi, weighing 176 pounds or something like that, going against guys who were 240, something like that. And he's... He's, you know, choking them out. He's, he's whatever. But they, the one thing they teach you in jujitsu is for every, I think it's for every 10, 15 pounds you give up, you might as well give that person a higher rank. So if I'm a black belt and I'm 150 pounds and I'm going against a guy who is 200 pounds, okay, he's got, he's automatically a white belt out the gate. He's a blue belt for the 160. He's a, he's a purple belt for 170. He's a brown belt for 180. He's a black belt for 190. Mm-hmm. Because they're saying for every 10 pounds, roughly, you're giving up. You're giving up that because that size matters. So you, you really have to be really good at your technique. You really have to be really good at your technique. And so I'm just, I wanted to clarify that. So like someone's sitting out there and they're like, well, if, what you see is like someone stepping on a scale. And usually they're showing you another weigh-in that the official weigh-in happens way before they have like people come out on stage and there's Joe Rogan there and, and he's mm-hmm. interviewing them and all that. That's not the official weigh-in. That's just to make it look good for the press. It's not really happening. They, they had to weigh in the day prior because they have to know if that person, if that fight's still even going to be on. So they're not going to even risk it. 
what I'm saying is I just think that the, the, the average person doesn't know how that works. That's why I wanted to put a little clarification in there. I could see where we're getting a hint deep. So that's all I wanted to do and throw that in there. Yeah, no, and I think that that's great because I do think it is pretty shocking once you start to wrap your head around what it is, you know, f- folks are doing. And and it's not going to be, you know, it is something that has to be somewhat dictated from up top because, as you said, the athletes are going to take whatever advantage they can. And you do see in the past couple of years a lot of athletes that think that they're gaining an advantage by going to a lower weight class and then they go up a weight class and they start to dominate because the improvements in their performance by not having to do mm-hmm. such a severe cut outweighs, no pun intended, but outweighs yeah. their, their, the, you know, um, what is happening in terms of the benefits that they're getting in terms of the strength. So it's, you know, the, the athletes are going to try to take whatever, do whatever they can to win. And so of course. It, it's, it's up to, you know, a couple of strategies that I have heard. Well, one would be to do something more similar to wrestling where you just have the way in closer. I don't think that they're ever going to do that. I'm assuming it's for financial reasons. I'm not exactly sure, but if they did have the way in closer, it would change things where people would probably be closer to their walking weight because they just wouldn't have the time to to regain. I want to throw this in there. You guys allow me to get some, some stress off my chest a little bit. I think, especially in MMA, there's not enough weight classes. Right. I've heard that too, yeah. Like, when I think of a littler guy, so let's say a guy who's 145 pounds and below, I think speed, right? Mm-hmm. When I think of a when I think of a uh, a bigger guy, so we're saying like a guy who's 200 and above. Okay, so you got your light heavyweights, blah blah blah, and even you could even say, yeah, I'll just say those two. I think power. So they're almost thinking like a, these human beings as like vehicles. So we have motorcycles. And we have SUVs and semi trucks, mm-hmm. you know. So from that 55 on down, you have a jump of every 10 pounds: 125, 135, 145, 155. Then from there, you go into what I call limbo. So we do a big skip, and we we say from 155 now you're going to go to 170. Yeah, it's a big jump. The weirdest weight class it is. Then we go from 170 to 185, then mm-hmm. 185 to 205. Mm-hmm. So, and I think the balance between the the most better fighters, I'm saying efficiently, not I'm not saying they're better or worse individually. I'm saying okay, the most balance between speed and power. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of great fighters in that in that area. And then you see people who do look very physically different, where you have a Tyron Woodley, and then you have somebody like a, a Cerrone yeah. or Wonderboy yeah. or Usman. And so you, you do see a wide variety of taller, shorter, stronger, stouter, skinnier, faster, you know, great, great fighters, a lot of great fighters in that in those weight classes. Anderson Silva's out of that era. I mean, out of that that thing, Chris Wyman, you mm-hmm. know, Romero, who's a freak of nature. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> dangerous, really, dangerous man. He is really the real-life Hulk or something. He's, yeah, anyway. Yeah. So, to me, like, that makes it very challenging because I think those are the most dominant, let's say, efficient weight classes. The idea there's no 65. The idea there's no 95 and a 75 perplexes me. So I, I, I notice that I see the most extreme weight cuts are predominantly in those middle weights. Most of the people that really hit their weights are usually smaller or bigger. And heavyweights don't have to worry about making weight. In the mm-hmm. grand scheme, they 265, yeah, but you don't really see a heavyweight not make weight. It's very rare. At 205, it's possible. It's still very rare. 85, people have problems. 70, people have problems. 55, it'd be that for a while there. 
it's just there's just this big void, and so I think that's where you're getting most of your problems, and um, it's it's a weird deal. And actually, those weight classes are recognized by the commission. They're official weight classes now. So they have 175 pounds, super welterweight weight class. And I think they have a 95 as well. And they have a 65. But the UFC doesn't want to add those weight classes. But that, I don't get it. But I had to throw that in there because I think that weight class situation makes it very, um, very, very challenging for a lot of people. Absolutely. And and that's something that I had heard before as well. And I think it would, you know, I think it would definitely be safer. It would uh, benefit the athletes and it would allow more of those great athletes in that middle realm to shine. And for me as a, you know, as, as a fan as well, I feel like those are, those are a lot of the fights that I really prefer more than heavyweights, more than lightweights, because you are seeing those, that balance of strength and, and, and uh, speed. Thank you. So, yeah, so you're seeing, you're seeing some really strange matchups, you know, so you're, you're getting matchups, stylistic matchups in terms of, you know, different martial arts, but then these matchups of, um, you know, strength and speed and, and, and the different skills that people bring to the, to the table. You know, one of my favorites out of that weight class was always uh, Robbie Lawler. And one of the uh, things I liked about him was just that, he, I, don't, I mean, he was also sort of a freak of nature. Like, for one, he just he just could take unlimited amounts of punishment. Yeah, he could. Which was He, which he was dishes surprising. it out, too. <laughs> he could. And, and it always seemed like he was getting better as the fight wore on. It seemed like, and he did a lot of five rounders and it just, he would seem like he was finally hitting his stride at the end of fifth rounds. And I just could never understand that. Like it was just showing that type of endurance. And um, it, it was just, you know, I couldn't wrap my head around it. I just, I don't, I don't know how he did that. So he was, you know, I always liked watching him. Um, but you see that in in those weight classes where, uh, you know, you have, you know, folks with just unbelievable endurance, unbelievable strength, shocking speed. Um, and so it's it, it creates some really interesting matchups. And, and I think it would just allow more people to shine, um, which I feel like would make sense from a financial standpoint for the UFC. So I'm not sure why they're so hesitant. I, I'd have to say GSP is the guy. And he's actually a guy yeah. I had visualized myself fighting one day. But uh, I, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know why it was my fantasy fight. It'd be GSP and then T-Wood in that order. And, and, and well, Matt Hughes. I should be a true 70-pounder. That's really my point. But um, <laughs> And you should be in the mix. Uh, I think is your yeah, second I, point. You're ready. You're ready to yeah, make the mix. Well, no, I'm, 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 I'm over the hill. I'm over the hill now. But <laughs> I'll say this. There was something that made me really respect him, uh, GSP. He had fought Dan Hardy, and he had had a very dominant performance against Dan Hardy. He applied his wrestling, uh, from what I recall, very well because Dan Hardy was a pretty good striker. And GSP came into that fight jacked. Jacked. I mean, he was, I mean, he looked like he was ready to do some male modeling. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and the guy was just chiseled and freaking oiled up, greased up, ready to just whatever, slay a bunch of young ladies and beat someone's ass. And like, basically, he just was there, bro. He was just there. I was like, and he had said prior to, it was out in the media that GSP lost 5% body fat, yet he gained 5 pounds of lean muscle mass. And I thought wow. that was beautiful. I thought it was beautiful. So there was an interviewer after the fight, not, not in the cage, after, like, in, uh, you know, like, post-post fighting and they asked uh some i think i believe it was a woman but i could be wrong someone asked him so 
what do you have to say to the the allegations and the critics that are saying that by you doing like gaining five pounds of lean muscle yet still being able to weigh in in the same weight class, saying that you may be on PEDs? What do you have to say to that? He goes, I got myself a cook. I got a chef. <laughs> and I was like, that's a perfect answer. He said, I invested in a chef, a cook. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, that's exactly how you're supposed to answer that. Mm-hmm. Someone who was responsible for, to, to, to bring everything me and you are putting together, someone who is responsible for your, your putting you in a caloric deficit, your macronutrients, <laughs> you know, basically yeah. your nutrition overall, making sure that you're receiving everything you, you need to make weight. And I think that's what I think the UFC or any other fighting organization should be making like a big deal out of. I, why, why put all these guys out on an island and say, hey, figure out how to make weight? Set up Absolutely. a program and say, hey, we're going to assign a nutritionist to you so that our chef or whatever they want to call it, we're going to assign someone to you to make sure you make weight. Because if you don't make weight, we lose money. As well oh, as absolutely. You and it's surprising. And every, every athletic organization, right? And so, and this is something that just, you know, continues to, to surprise me. Um, you know, the last time that, that we talked, you had brought up, I believe, the, this idea that, you know, a lot of athletes are so used to being coached and have been coached for such a long time. And so, you know, get really good at being coached, being coachable, taking instruction. But then with nutrition, a lot of athletes are often left to their own devices or their parents are left to their own devices. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of people would be surprised to the degree that professional and even collegiate level programs that are making millions of dollars put nothing into nutrition nothing they don't they don't you know like you would think that a pro team in a variety of sports would be investing in nutrition but they don't a lot of them don't and 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 certainly at the college level as well and it continually surprises me that they don't do that it's it's such a straightforward simple fix and you know one of the things that you brought up earlier was was mindset. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. But one of the ways that one of the reasons that mindset I think is important is that compliance. And I and I'm I'm gonna guess that one of the reasons that you're such a big proponent of mindset is because when you're in this field and especially for you as a personal trainer, as a coach, somebody who works a lot one on one with people, the biggest issue that that you have with exercise or nutrition is compliance. You know, if people aren't going to do what you're saying, (laughs) you can put together the greatest program in the world now. So when it comes to athletes, you know, athletes are very coachable. They're very compliant. So they are some of the best people to provide uh, nutritional advice to because they're generally going to follow it. So it's just so surprising to me that, that a lot of um, athletic departments don't involve that. Now, I do want to make a comment about mindset just to just uh, to sort of disagree with you a little bit where mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to put too much on mindset because of the fact that I don't want people to think that, you know, that that's all that it takes. And I don't want people to, you know, I think I think there's an idea out there that people who are unhealthy or who are sedentary or um, who are overweight, that that it's their fault and they just have the wrong mindset. I don't believe that. I think that there's a lot of people who have been struggling and struggling hard, but maybe just haven't had the right tools. So mindset Mm -hmm. plays a role, but it's not the only role. And so I just don't want people to be thinking like, you know, everything is mindset that everybody who's lean is because they have the right mindset and everybody who's heavy is because they have the wrong mindset. Because I don't think that's true. There's a lot of people that are on Instagram that look great that are lucky. I know people. Mm-hmm. I know people that have, you know, more followers than I do, that don't know anything about food and eat a Burger King. I don't think I've stepped foot in a Burger King 
you know, since like the nineties, it's been a long time. Okay. And they'll right. eat at Burger King every day and they look great and they show pictures of being shredded. And it's like, <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not helping anybody like you, you, you know, so, so mindset plays a really important role for me, especially because when it comes to compliance, because the more, and I do like the idea of, of, you know, in order to lose weight and in order to change your body composition, you have to suffer. Um, I do like that idea. And maybe we can get into that a little more later, but I just, mindset's important. You know, if you, if you're not following a diet or an exercise routine, you're not going to get anywhere. But at the same time, I, I want to flip it a little bit and just say that like after compliance, the second most important metric that goes with it is time that you have to give it time to work. And it's one of the reasons that I love weightlifting because when it comes to weightlifting, you have numbers that you can look at that show your progress, right? So you can, you can set up a really simple system to say like, I want to gain five pounds on my bench press every month. Mm -hmm. So you put together a program, you're gaining that five pounds every month. Now that doesn't seem like much, but then that means that you're gaining 60 a year. And so that means that you can go from 135 to 195, right? And then to 255 and then to 315 over a number of years. Now you might have some hiccups in there, what have you, but the point is, is if you can go from 135 to 315 bench pressing, that's a huge, huge difference. And the only thing that really made that work was time and letting the work do what it is. So, you know, the, the part of mindset that I really want people to try to take away is that making small changes and doing them consistently can have huge, huge benefits. It doesn't have to be, I have to completely change everything in order to see benefits. You can see benefits with just small changes and small changes can build on other small changes. So there are, there are ways in which mindset can be really beneficial, but I want people to try to get out of a sort of like guilt complex because right, right. you know we have too much body hatred as it is or body envy you know, which is even worse. And I think we've all fallen for that, right? I think, you know, I I mean, I certainly, when I first started weightlifting, I definitely wanted to look like other people. I was definitely like, I want to look like that dude. I want to look like that person. I want to look like that. And it took me a long time to get out of that mindset and to be like, oh, I don't want to look like anybody anymore. I just want to get stronger and look better than I did if I can, but I definitely want to get stronger. And I definitely want to do that because I know I can, because it's a number and I'm just, my whole program is set on these numbers mm-hmm. where, you know, it's my, you know, I want my squat to go up. I want my deadlift to go up. I want my bench press to go up very small amounts. So I want to say this, I, I want to clarify. Yes. Mindset is what I do believe in. And that is correct. But to me, that's the first step. It's just, it's just okay. Well, like I say all the time, even when I'm like in my staff meetings at work, um, when I at, at uh, my gym, I say the hardest part is just getting for that person is to get through the door. Mm-hmm. It's just to walk in the door mm-hmm. because the majority of people feel who have not who are not familiar with the gym and they. They they feel uncomfortable. They 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 feel like every single person in the gym is looking at. Them. They mm-hmm. think that everyone has got their eyes on them, and it, and and it brings a level of insecurity. It brings a level of um, of worry, you know, and stress. And 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 like, I'm like us as trainers, our job is to let them know that they're they're okay, and and and, and they've made that first step. And it, and all to I me. Mean, all I see myself as a personal trainer as as navigation. I'm just I'm just GPS. I cannot I cannot lift for someone. I cannot I cannot you know sleep for someone. I cannot eat for someone. I cannot drink for someone. I cannot do anything for you except show you a direction where I've previously seen success. Because I can't guarantee you anything. And 
I, I love the idea of, of taking our time, but the whole time I'm, I'm constantly brainwashing the client. I'm like, you are amazing. You, 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 you know, you, you, you got this, you know? And a lot of times not everybody's in the gym for aesthetics. That is mm-hmm. a, a common idea that I think most people think it's not necessarily aesthetics. I'm more concerned from a standpoint of how is your respiratory system? How is your mm-hmm. heart health? Did a doctor send you here that, did he say that you had hypertension? Did, did, did you have type 2 diabetes or potentially you're on the verge of it? Like, I'm more concerned like that. The, mm-hmm. I, I, I call like the, the athlete or someone who is relatively healthy, you know, even if I won't say skinny fat, but someone who we would just say on the surface is pretty healthy. But well, I call them cake. You just need to apply yourself a little bit and you'll get the results you want, blah, blah, blah. That's not the challenge. The type, the type of person that's a challenge to me is the person who has health concerns. And what I'm telling them is like, oh, you have children. Your longevity affects others. Mm-hmm. So I had a I had a woman and I said, and she, I was like, you're a mother, correct? She's like, yeah. So like you, it's safe to say you love your, your children. She's like, I would do anything for my children. And I'm like, well, your health allows you to be a better parent. Because I'm like, God mm-hmm. forbid something happens to you and you're no longer breathing. That affects your children. Absolutely. They no longer have a mother. They no longer have this person. So what I'm trying to do as, as a trainer is place value and increase value on being healthy. I'm not, see right now I don't think a lot of times people understand the value of it. It's, it's beyond just the aesthetics. The aesthetics to me is mm-hmm. a side effect. It's a side effect. Agreed. Agreed. It, yeah, it, let me, this is, I mean, this is the way I think about it. I'd be curious to hear your, your thoughts on it, but you know, the way that I try to approach people with it is, is very similar, but I also will try to add in mood benefits because I want people to have an instant gratification. So I tell people, you know, the two reasons that I eat healthy and the two reasons that I exercise are to have a better day for my quality of life to improve so that I am in a good mood today. So the way that I eat today, the way that I exercise today affects how I feel today. And for those long range benefits in terms of overall health it's called health span and lifespan, right? So to, to live longer, but to live healthy for longer, right? Is that health span idea. And what I try to focus on for people is, um, and this will kind of take us into the sort of body composition discussion, mm-hmm. is that, you know, it's, it's counterintuitive to a lot of people, but weight training is probably most important for elderly people. The older you get, the more important weight training becomes, because what it allows is it allows you to uh, enhance or at the very least maintain bone integrity, which is usually important as you get older, because many, many people start breaking bones and then start going to the hospital and then, you know, death follows not too far after. And then the other is muscle maintenance to allow for that, not just functionality, to be able to just live your life, move around, walk around, do the things that you want to do, but then also to help save you from that fall, to help you, you know, um, to help protect those bones in, from the functional aspect of, you know, not falling in the first place, not losing your foot, right. what have you, right? So, right. That, so, so that bone and muscle maintenance is so much more important for, you know, my father in his 90s than for mm-hmm. you know me um so so that that's those are the areas i try to focus on and i think aesthetics are are a wonderful side effect but I, but oh, i yeah. agree with it, you that they it, are it, that it right? yeah, it like, like use that it, use that to motivate you know take a look mm-hmm. in the mirror see what's happening and use that as motivation to be like oh this is really working but okay. um certainly keep that as a secondary we're not doing it to look better we just get to look better as a result but you know my prime driver 
is those mood benefits and then those long-range health benefits. Sorry for this. I so I want to say this about what you were saying about you, you're eating healthier so you're feeling better. This is where I can run into issues with an individual I'm training because you're, an ex- you're the exception to the rule from my point of view, Paul. I, I myself am the exception to the rule. Okay. The last mm-hmm. time I looked it up, it was like, what, 16% of the, of the U.S. population has a gym membership. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, um, you could say about 18, uh, 8%, 8% uses it. So that makes things right. very interesting. So sometimes it's just not that cut and dry for someone to start to eat healthy. It's like, okay, I'm a young, I'm a young lady. I just went through a bad breakup. I need something to comfort me. Mm-hmm. This food comforts me. Mm-hmm. This, this is the only thing that's been here, and it's true, and it makes me, it makes me feel good in the moment. uh, I can I can eat away my sorrows in a sense like some people drink away their pain you know sugar is a drug Mm -hmm. to me no different than (laughs) than cocaine in in some cases it's a drug it's an actual drug Mm -hmm. because people can get addicted to sugar and um, they get that that sugar craving and they and they need it and they have to have it now that it's a form of addiction so it's just to me it's not that cut and dry to say like yes I feel better and blah 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 but they associate Burger King McDonald's Taco Bell with that feeling of good whereas we associate fruits and vegetables lean protein things like that with feeling better so we have to even break down that wall before we can even shift them over there is, is my belief. That's because a good point. You're, 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 you're dealing with, and I, I'm not saying always, but based on what I know of you, you're dealing with other athletes. And like you said, they're, they're more agreeable. They're going to listen. They're going to do what they're told. That's why I, I, that's why I call them cake. They're, they're easy to deal with. Whereas, um, Someone, but they're just, they're just the bare bones. They have no clue of direction. They have no idea on how to, on how to approach the gym, on how to approach their nutrition, on how to approach any of these things. And you know what? I'll give you a better idea. I don't know if I've said this before. So I literally had this happen. So I had a client and what I do is I have people start in stages. So the first stage is I have to teach them how to eat. All right. So we don't go for the gusto. Mm -hmm. So the the first thing I say to them is here's what I want you to do. Cause they'll, they'll ask me for a diet plan and I'll be like, okay, here's what I want you to do. And I'm like, there's really no tricks to this. And it's just to get them excited, but it's the truth. I say, I want you to eat whatever you want. They go, what? You don't want me to stop doing this or doing that? I said, no. The first thing is I want you to eat whatever you want. I want you to eat as much as you want. Do understand this, though. The signal for hunger and thirst are very similar. So sometimes when you're actually thirsty, you may mistake that for food. I know I, I'm pretty sure I said that maybe before. Mm-hmm. All right. Eat, eat whatever you want and eat any time you want. I don't care if it's three in the morning or four in the afternoon. See, the first thing is people go into the gym and they're expecting you as a trainer to tell them what they can't do. And that's mm-hmm. my first rule. I'll never tell you what you can't do. I don't think that way. I think in a sense, I'm like, things you can't do. You can't levitate and fly. You can't turn invisible. Like, like it's, it's an absolute when you say can't. Take pee off, you can do it all day. You can, you can, you can apply yourself. You can work hard. You can, you can reach your goal. So I'm not going to invite that word. 
So I, I, I treat it more as beneficial and non-beneficial. So how does this benefit you? Does this help you get to where you want to go? Or does it not? So, so I say, eat whatever you want as much as you want anytime you're hungry. Okay? The only rule that I have is you can do all these things as long as what you are consuming is not processed. Now, I'm at the bottom of a pyramid that I've created. This is level one of the pyramid. You're on the first floor of the pyramid. I just got to get you to understand what even processed foods are. And I came up with this method because I was like, okay, I came up with this method because I ran into a problem. I'm going to go to that problem in a second. But basically I said, okay, you have wheat bread and you have white bread. Mm-hmm. Which one do you choose? And they'll go, some people say white bread. I'm like, mm-hmm. they're like, that's bad. I'm like, well, uh, white bread has been processed and, and been bleached in a sense. So it's not really how it's, uh, you better go on with holy bread. I'm like, I'll make it easier for you. Fruit versus candy. Okay, uh, okay, fruit. Okay, juice versus soda. With that said, this wraps up part one of our conversation. Please tune in again for part two. In the meantime, you can find us by our name alone, or you can go to Field of Geeks. We are under their network umbrella. On behalf of Juan, Paul, and myself, Josh, thanks for listening. Until next time, please enjoy, share, and comment respectfully. Take care.